Welcome to Treasure Mountain, the podcast that inspires and guides us to find the treasure within human experience. I'm your host, Sol Hanna. This episode is about the late, great Master Sing Yun, a true dynamo of a monk dedicated to spreading the teachings and practice of Buddhism in Taiwan, China, and around the world. Master Sing Yun has achieved so much in his lifetime that it is virtually impossible to relate but a small part of it here in the introduction. However, by way of offering an introduction, here is a quick outline of his achievements. Starting in the 1950s, Sing Yun started making many achievements at an early age. He taught numerous classes, built many schools for children, recorded the first Buddhist hymns, and was promoted as an executive in many Buddhist associations. In 1957, Sing Yun established a Buddhist cultural center in which a variety of Buddhist books are published with training tools such as audio and visual aids. In 1959, Sing Yun also supported the Tibetan movement against communist suppression and organized the first float parade in celebration of Wesak in Taiwan. And of course, Wesak is the day which we commemorate the birth, awakening and passing of the Lord Buddha. Perhaps one of Master Sing Yun's greatest achievements was his successful push for Vesak Day to become a national holiday in Taiwan, a wish that has been granted by former President Li Tonghui in the year 2000. Master Sing Yun was the founder and spiritual leader of Fuguang Shan, a Buddhist organization that has established around 300 temples and monasteries all over Taiwan as well as in 12 other countries including China, the United States, Australia, South Africa, Canada, Brazil, Japan, Thailand, Malaysia, France, the Netherlands and the United Kingdom. He is also the author of 395 books in Chinese, many of which have been translated into other languages, notably to English. And all of this is just a brief outline, leaving out much of what Master Sing Yun has achieved in his life. Joining us to talk in greater depth about the life and legacy of Master Sing Yun is Venerable Jueifeng, who is the General Manager of the Sing Yun Education Foundation in Wollongong, Australia. So join us as we seek for the treasure within. Welcome to Treasure Mountain, Venerable. How are you today? Hi, Sol. Good afternoon to you. All good here. I hope you are well as well. I certainly am, and I really thank you for taking the time to come on to our podcast. And I'm looking forward to finding out about Master Sing Yun. Now, some of our listeners may be a bit familiar with Master Sing Yun, but many may not be. So let's start at the beginning. Could you offer a little bit of background about where Master Sing Yun came from? Thank you, Sol. Master Sing Yun was born in the year 1927 in China, Yangzhou, which is actually in the southern part of China. So that was where he started. At the age of 12, he became a novice monk and then came to Taiwan in the year 1949 at the age of 22 
And from there, he built Buddhism, spread Buddhism, taught Buddhism to the rest of the world until he passed away on the 5th of February, 2023, this year, at the age mm. of 97. Wow, that's that's quite incredible. And considering how um, much he achieved, it's amazing that he, he managed to make it to 97. Now, I believe there is a rather astonishing story about how he became a novice monk. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yes, um, this story, frankly speaking, I'm actually very inspired by this story as well. So, you know, we know about the Sino-Japanese War during the 1930s. And in that year where he became a novice monk, which is in the year 1939, there was one day when his mother brought him to Nanjing, um, which is not so far away from his hometown, to search for his father because his father was working in Nanjing, but they just lost contact. His mother brought this little child with her to find his husband, but they couldn't find him. So most probably he has died during that time. On their way, on their way back home, they passed by this temple, the Chicha Temple in Nanjing, and they ran, went in. So the abbot of the temple saw this little boy and thought, oh, he looked like quite a smart, intelligent and kind little boy so he asked him whether he would like to become a monk and this little boy said yes i would like to so from that day onwards in the was actually the first of the second lunar month in the year 1939 he became a monk at the age of 12 and until the age of 97 his only um career we should say his only thing that he has done throughout the life was to be a monk. Hmm, that's an incredible dedication. Now, uh, Sing Yun was not his birth name, and in fact, I believe it wasn't even his original ordination name. How did Master Sing Yun come across the name, and what does it mean? Yeah, so I think we have done quite some research on him, and of course, his name was actually Sing Yun was a name that he named himself. It wasn't his birth name, it wasn't the name given by his master. So his teacher, his master, gave him the name Jin Jue, which means to be enlightened at this moment. But one day when the Venerable Master was reading in his Buddhist college in the temple, he came across this um, dictionary and he saw that the, the term Nebula, which is actually a part of a man's universe, so he thought the name Sing Yun, Sing means star, Yun is cloud. So he thinks that he's just like a little star, he's just like the floating clouds in the sky. He hopes to be able to be as immense as possible. He hopes to be able to serve all living beings as much as possible. That's mm. why he named himself Sing Yun. Oh, it's a beautiful name. Um... Now, uh, Master Sing Yun lived most of his life in Taiwan. How did he end up moving from mainland China to Taiwan? Yeah, thank you, Sol, for the question. We all know about the cross-straits relationships and the political situations during that time. So the Venerable Master was actually part of a monastic nursing team that actually took care of those people who had... Um, who had some injuries during that time. That's how he came from China to Taiwan. 
Mm, okay. Uh, one thing I discovered when I was doing research for this episode was an astonishing list of achievements by Master Sing Yun during his life as a monk. In fact, I think we could spend an entire episode just going through all of the many achievements of Master Sing Yun. But for the sake of giving just an overview of Master Sing Yun's achievements, could you outline what you think are some of the most significant of his achievements? Yes, I think you are correct to say that his achievements is just astonishing and immense. So I think the core of all that is actually his evocation and dedication and practice of humanistic Buddhism. And through this, it has changed the landscape of Buddhism, I should say, not only in Taiwan or China, but throughout the world that he has affinities with. So just to name a few, for example, about the modernization of Buddhism. So we know that as being part, being trained and brought up in Chinese Buddhism, he actually had a very rigid, um, we should say a very strict education in the temple. But he believed that Buddhism should be something that brings life, that brings happiness to everybody. It should be accessible to everyone. So there were a few things that he did, for example, the first thing was apart from the traditional chanting with all the Dhamma instruments or the wooden fish, the traditional chanting, he actually wrote Buddhist hymns. So he believed that Buddhism should be of joy. It should be easy for people to come in. So during his um, lectures, his talks, and even the chanting sessions that he organized, there were a lot of singing. So in the early 1950s, he was actually the first monk in Taiwan to have organized, started a Buddhist choir and also to publish some albums, a Buddhist hymns albums. So since the 1950s until today, he has contributed a lot to the modernization of Buddhism. So that was yeah. the first thing. Yeah. Well, I so, do think perhaps just to give some context also, in some ways, um, Buddhism in China, as it had many places, had gotten a bit stuck in terms of some of its traditions. And Master Sing Yun wanted to make uh, Buddhism relevant and accessible. Is that is that correct? Uh, yes. So another example will be about you know the traditional text or the Tripitaka. So there were a lot of um, sacred texts that, frankly speaking, most people couldn't understand. Not not only not understanding the contents, but they may not be even be able to read the words, especially where the Chinese sacred texts, most of them did not have punctuations. So what he did was also starting from the 1950s, he actually published scriptures, sutras every month, one sutra per month, where he actually modernized the language. The first thing he did was to add in the punctuation marks and also to simplify the, the, the words. So from there, just one, one booklet or one sutra per month, he started the Tripitaka project where the whole Tripitaka, the Chinese Tripitaka, there was a re-edition since the 1970s. He started a committee on that. And mm, of course, mm. the novels, um, the books that he wrote, there were a lot of things that make people felt very accessible. And mm. other things like education, 
Also, since 1950s, when he was only in his 20s, he started the first Buddhist kindergarten in Taiwan, where he, in the temple where, where he was in. So with there, for since the 1950s, he started kindergartens, primary schools, like high schools, and to date, there are five universities throughout the world started founded by him. So all these are his um, dedication to education. He always, he was, he's actually very humble. And I believe that is quite true that he says he has never been to school because he was just too poor. His family was too poor to provide him an education. But he believed that education changes life. That is why he, he, he put in his best. He dedicated himself to bringing education accessible to everyone. And, you know, in his um, later days, in the recent maybe 10 to 20 years where he started writing the one-stroke calligraphy, I'm not sure whether he would have seen them. He couldn't move as much as he wished to due to his um, physical conditions, but he started to write calligraphy all in a stroke. So these the proceeds from these calligraphies, he actually contributed them to foundations, to public funds, so that they will be able to continue providing education for all who needs that. Mm. So these are some of the things that I think he has done for the public. And for Buddhism itself, um, one very important thing is about the equality of the Buddhist community. Equality in two parts. One is among the monastics, which is we know that as a traditional religion, Buddhism perhaps has more emphasis on the male monastics, but through him, he actually gave both male and female monastics equal opportunities because he mm. believed that irregardless of gender, it is the devotion to learn Buddhism, to practice Buddhism and to serve all living beings that made a monastic, a monastic. So his part, his contribution to the equality of monastics and also the next part about equality is the equality between monastics and lay devotees. So the monastics had a role to propagate the Dharma, but the lay devotees also shadowed, um, shouldered the responsibilities of propagating Buddhism and also to share their talents and make full use of their abilities to help Buddhism grow. So all these about equality, I think, is also instrumental to the development of Bokwangshan or the Buddha's Light International Association that he has founded and hence contributing to the development of Buddhism in the world today. Mm. And I think he showed a lot of foresight in trying to make more, more quality within Buddhism and get more participation as well. Now, you just mentioned that he was the founder of Fokwangshan. Uh, could you tell us what the word Fokwangshan means or the name means? And could you tell us about its founding and, and the spread of Fokwangshan? Fokwangshan literally means for is Buddha, Guang is light, Shan is mountain. 
So Fu Guangshan means Buddha's light mountain. Fu Guangshan is in the southern part of Taiwan. The Venerable Master founded Fu Guangshan in the year 1967 on the 16th of May, which is two days from today. And we will be celebrating our 57th anniversary. So why did he start Fu Guangshan? At that time, he was in his, that year he was 40 years old. Why did he start Fu Guangshan? Because he wanted a bigger space so that he would be able to build a Buddhist college, a proper Buddhist college that would train monastics and lay people to learn Buddhism and also help with the promotion of Buddhism throughout the world. That was his initial um, reason why he started for Wangshan. But of course, if we were to look at, if we were to read some of his memories or even some of the pictures that we have seen in his heart, he wanted a place where all people could come to learn Buddhism and to share the joy of the Dharma. Um, could you tell us how many, because um, there's many branches in terms of temples and monasteries today, how many are there exactly? Do you know? Okay, so Vokongshan started in the year 1967 in Taiwan, and because he start, it started as a Buddhist college, so it actually attracted a lot of students from Taiwan, and it started with Malaysia and all around the world to pursue and education in Buddhism. At the same time, it attracted a lot of devotees, people who are interested to, to pray, to be part of Buddhism, to come to the temple. So from Taiwan, it started to uh, Malaysia and all around the world. So that's how Buddhism spread from, Fokwangshan started from Taiwan to the rest of the world. And today, we have about 300 temples around the world in all five mm. continents. Mm, that's a pretty big impact. Now, he's quite an interesting character because after he established this, what was going on to become a very successful um, organization teaching Buddhism in many countries, he seemed to resign quite abruptly after 20 years, I believe it was in 1995, and he handed leadership over to one of his senior disciples. Why did Master Simeon do this? Um, we know that in his teachings or his belief, he thinks that Buddhism, there should be a proper constitution. Buddhism should be governed, governed by a system. So when he started Bogangshan, there was a constitution. There was actually, he set up a board of directors. And in the constitution about the term of the abbot, or the person in charge, the chair of the board of directors. At that time, the constitution states that the chair, which is the abbot or the abbess, would have two terms. And in extraordinary conditions, there could be a third term. Every term was six years. So he actually was there for the first two terms, 12 years. And because that was in the beginning of the Fogwangshan, in his early years, he stayed for the third term, which is altogether 18 years. So I should say that in the year 1985, in the year 1985, where he stepped down as the abbot, 
he actually followed the constitution of Wangshan. And since then, he has established a very good example that you know things should follow the system. And to date, we have got elections of the board of directors. We have the election of the abbot until today. I just so want to say there has been quite a few abbots until today. That's really good. I wanted to say on my own personal opinion, which is that I think this is an excellent example because so often in religious um, organizations, there's a bit of a cult of personality. And I think he very deliberately seems to have said, okay, we're not going to do that. We're going to be organized by you know, good principles and good governance. And it's going to be about all of us, not just about one person. So I think that's a very uh, inspiring example. Now, um, Buddhists outside of Taiwan and China may not know that Master Singyun was a reformer of Mahayana Buddhism. And you mentioned earlier that he was one of the main proponents of humanistic Buddhism. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about how Master Singyun was a reformer of Buddhism, particularly in the Chinese-speaking world? And in particular, you know, what does humanistic Buddhism, what was changing uh, in Buddhism, in, particularly in that Chinese-speaking world? Okay, so I think a lot of people have questions about humanistic Buddhism. So the Venerable Master believes that humanistic Buddhism is just Buddhism. So it is anything that is thought by the Buddha, that is needed by human beings, is pure and is virtuous and beautiful. So any teaching that promotes the happiness of humanity is regarded as humanistic Buddhism. So throughout his life, he has devoted his entire life to the Buddha, regarding him as his teacher, and also taken Buddhism as his path. There are a few things, especially in terms of reform, that I would like to share with you. One is about building a system. So for Guangshan, as what we have um, discussed earlier, it is actually, um, it is actually maintained, it is actually governed by a set of constitution, code of conduct, there is a um, board of directors, there are different committees, all working within their terms that they should serve. So I think this is extremely important because as what you have mentioned earlier, it ensures the continuity of the organization. It ensures the continuity of the religion, irregardless, and not only repent depending on one particular person. So I think this part is a very great reform that he has done. The second is about the simplicity of the religion itself. As what I've mentioned earlier about him introducing Buddhist hymns, singing, about um, simplifying the words, the written words of um, the, 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 the scripts, the the sutras and also the text. I think this is also another thing that allows people to come into Buddhism is easily. And there are also another thing is about the BLIA, Buddha's Light International Association, that he has established. So you mentioned that um, you, you, you gave me the question about him establishing founding for Wangshan, the temple, the temple itself. But 
Actually, a very important thing that he has done is also the founding of the Buddha's Light International Association that allows lay people in, from all walks of life, from all countries, people from all races, all cultures, to be able to come into this association and play their part to contribute to the society. And of course, um, BLIA currently is a member of UNESCO and has received this title um, since, I think, in the year 2000. And I think it allows Buddhism to step forward, to step up, to shoulder the responsibility that the religion has for humanity as a whole. So mm. there are also other things that he has done. For example, he has... Um, started a lot of um, Buddhist weddings. So it was also started in the year 1950s in, in, during that time where he started to officiate Buddhist weddings. And um, this is actually quite important because Buddhism has always been seen by people as being um, living the world, something that is about letting go, about pursuing a religious life, but to him, he believes that everyone has a role to play in the world today. So for lay people, they have to contribute to their family and the happiness and joy in the family is extremely important, both to the religion, but more importantly to the world and to them as individuals. So these are some of the things that he has done. And I believe they are... Um, I'm very grateful for what he's done. Yeah, I think he's a quite um, a progressive and far-sighted person uh, within our Buddhist religious circles. And um, in particular, I wanted to ask you about his work regarding interreligious dialogue and friendship. Could you tell us a little bit about that, please? Yeah, I think you have, you have asked a very important question about interreligious dialogue. To him, he believes that, of course, he has said that he has devoted his entire life to the Buddha and also taken Buddhism as his path. But there, I would like to share with you a very interesting story, a, a real life story that happened in Australia. So in the, year 20, in the year 2000, when he was in Australia, so one day there was this MP who asked him a question. And he, this MP asked him, which religion do you think is the greatest in the world today? And he answered, the one that you like, the one that you believe in is the greatest religion. And he said that everybody has their own father. So my father takes care of me. I love my father. Your father takes care of you. You love your father. It actually means that the Buddha, I, as a Buddhist, I love Buddha. As a Christian, mm. you may love God. So who is as great? We should respect each other's faith. We should mm. respect each other's religion. And there are actually two other things that happened that I would also like to share with you. So we know about the September 11th attack. And um, he was actually the first Buddhist representative to be able to, to, to go into the site for prayer. 
And in his prayer, the first thing that he said is, "Great compassionate Buddha, great compassionate God, great compassionate Allah, please bless us." So to、mm. him, he thinks that everybody has the right to their own faith. Everybody has the right to their own religion, and all should be respected.、Um, another incident, another example would be in the year twenties. Twenty zero eight, there was actually a typhoon in Taiwan, and Fo Guang Shan, which is the Buddha's light mountain, was one of the places that actually hosts a lot of all these、um, refugees, and、um, we took care of them. Most of them are Catholics, and instead of only having monastics, Buddhist monastics taking care of them, there was this space, this hall. Where the venerable master invited the Catholic fathers, the Catholic religious、um, representatives, to come into our temple, to come into this hall, to lead in the prayers of the for all these people who suffered in the typhoon. So, in his heart, he believed that every religion is equal and everyone's faith should be respected. So, in light of his philosophy, there were actually a lot of religious exchanges,、um, whether in Fo Guang Shan's events where there are、um, religious multi、uh, interreligious、um, prayer for world peace. There are a lot of conferences that we have done between the different religions, and there are also some walkathons that、um, in Taiwan and Fo Guang Shan itself where. We will start from Fogangshan, and the end point would be one of the churches around Fogangshan. And of course,、um, the venerable master has、um, paid, has visited the pope, the previous popes,、um, a few times. And since his passing away in March, actually the current abbot, Abbot Sinbao of Fogangshan, led. A group of representatives from Taiwan, religious representatives, representatives from Buddha's Light International Association, to visit the current Pope. So、mm. there are a lot of such exchanges. And、um, currently, of course, apart from Catholic or Christianity, there is also、um, interreligious exchanges with Islam and many、mm. other religions as well. Depending on the local religion of the temple that is based in. Right, I also believe he's been very interested、uh, in trying to understand like early Buddhism, and he's been trying to build bridges between the different Buddhist traditions. And I think that's I mean, the fact that the traditions、um, have been a little bit isolated from one another. I think. Culturally, linguistically, for quite some time, and I think that he had the foresight to kind of say, "Well, we've got a lot in common, and let's try and find out what that commonality is."、Um, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, but I, I was—that's the thing that struck me about Master Sing Yun is that he was very interested in building those bridges between the Buddhist traditions. Thank you for bringing this question about bridging bridges for the different Buddhist traditions. Um, the venerable master he believes that 
we have the same Buddha, irregardless of our cultures. It is because people lived in different parts of the world, people have different cultures, and hence there are different schools or different traditions of Buddhism. But all of us, we have the same Buddhist, Buddha's teachings, and hence we should come together. There are two examples that I would like to share with you. One is um, the building of a temple in Thailand. So in Bangkok, there is this Pai Hua temple. Pai is Thailand. Hua is Lotus or Chinese temple that the Venerable Master built about 10 years ago. So this is a temple that is really devoted to the dialogue, the exchange between the Chinese Buddhism and also the local Thai Buddhism. And we have seen so many monks from different schools in Thailand coming to the Taihua Temple for religious for this Buddhism Buddhist dialogues and religious exchanges. Um, another interesting thing that um, we, we see is that if you have a chance to visit Fofangshan, uh, please come to the Buddha Museum in Fofangshan itself. It is actually the only museum today that is um, the, it is the only museum in the world today that is how should I put it? If you have a chance to come to Fofangshan, please visit the Buddha Museum. So the Buddha Museum has one of its um, shrines. It actually has a Thai Buddha statue enshrined in the Buddha Museum. So that was also part of the uh, inter, I should say, the inter-religious, inter-Buddhism dialogue that the mm. Venerable Master hopes to achieve. Mm. Mm. Um, look, I did want to address one area of controversy, and that is Master Sing Yun's involvement in politics. He was born in China and lived most of his life in Taiwan. However, he was always he always supported the One China policy and has gone as far as saying at the World Buddhist Forum in 2009 that there are no Taiwanese and that Taiwanese are Chinese. He also returned to China and cooperated with the government there. Can you help us understand Master Sing Yun's motivations and his aims and whether these are even political aims at all? Yeah, this is a very important question that I believe a lot of people are interested to find out. I think the Venerable Master, he is a religious figure. He knows his, his responsibility towards the religion. But mm. on the other hand, he also believes that he should be a responsible citizen of the world today. Being a responsible citizen, what does it constitute? It is somebody who's able to contribute to the peace in the world today. Because he knew, he, he, know, he said that he actually grew up during the wars. He knows the difficulties, the, the, the fear that people face in times without peace. That is why he has also devoted himself to the promotion of peace it's only with peace that happiness is made possible. So either in Taiwan or in China or throughout the world, I think this is the main thing that he wants to promote, peace. 
And where does peace comes from in the face of politics? Most of the time, it is about respect of a person. So this person, it is about the dignity, the life of a person that should be respected, irregardless of the country or the citizenship. And to him, every living being is equal. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point, and I guess in one sense, from a Buddhist point of view, there is no nationalities. It's just there's just human beings, and we're all we're all one in one sense. So that's a, again, that's that's how far sighted he was, I suppose. Exactly. I think you know him. Mm -hmm. Look, um, we've arrived at the final question. I'd like, could you please sum up the life of Master Sing Yun by explaining what you think his legacy is? For Buddhism in the modern world. Okay, so thank you for your question. His legacy for the modern world. There are two aspects, I should say. First is all the organizations, all the achievements, all the um, entities, all the things I should say, the things that he has done. That's his legacy, bringing Buddhism, the modernization of Buddhism, um, the contribution of Buddhism to the world today. But on the other hand, I think that his legacy also lies in his philosophy. For example, the three acts of goodness. I have、uh, mentioned just now that he has put Buddhism very accessible to people. We know about the cultivation、uh, of Buddhism, as in the cultivation of a person. It comes through the body, the the speech, and the mind. So with this. He says that we should do good deeds, we should speak good words, and we should think good thoughts. You know, he has enabled people to 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 practice the Dharma, practice Buddhism so easily. And with this, we could say that instead of being in the past where people says that、uh, do not do something, no killing, no stealing, he has actually made it very positive. Do good, speak good, think good. And on top of this, he has actually reconfirmed, reaffirmed people about the Buddha nature that all of us have, and this builds confidence for us to face ourselves and to face our life ahead. That makes a happier living possible. These are the two parts of the legacy which I think,、um, to me. It's very important. Look, thank you very much, Venerable Jiafeng, for taking the time to join us today and to let us know about the life and legacy of Master Sing Yun. Thank you once again. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us for this episode of Treasure Mountain with Venerable Jiafeng. And we learnt in this episode about the life and legacy of Master Sing Yun. If you'd like to find out more about Master Sing Yun. There are links to more information in the show notes below this episode, and I'd like to say a special thanks to supporters Ariel and Bill, who offer donations that help the Everyday Dharma Network continue to get Dharma resources posted online in audio format. And thank you also to our members who chip in a little bit each month to help us keep going. If you like and value the content of Treasure Mountain Podcast or any of the other podcasts in the Everyday Dharma Network. You too can offer a one-off donation 
or become a member for a small monthly donation to help fund this podcast. I really appreciate your support. I hope you'll join us again for our next episode of Treasure Mountain Podcast as we seek for the treasure within you.